let us turn now to Hebrews chapter 12. And many of you may be wondering, well, I thought we were going through the hall of faith, which is all encapsulated in Hebrews chapter 11, which it is. But how can we not speak about the greatest of all, the hero of all, Jesus himself, in this conversation concerning faith? And the writer of Hebrews does not give us Jesus within the uh, 11th chapter, but he then concludes by stating in the word therefore, which is a Greek term that means this is the conclusion of everything that I have set up until this point. And so anytime you come to see the word therefore in the Bible, you should always ask the question, uh, why is it there? What is the conclusion in which the writer is about to make? And as we find now in Hebrews chapter 12, he has saved, obviously, the best for last. Our true motivation, the one in whom we should have our eyes fixed upon, the one who has gone before us and has blazed a trail and has run that trail in perfection. And that is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. As the writer of Hebrews then picks it up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Throughout the New Testament, the Christian life is likened to a race. Paul used that metaphor, that illustration, continuously as he was trying to explain to his Gentile recipients, his Gentile readers, what the Christian life will look like uh, in your own life. And the life is that of one who is conducting themselves or running within a race. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you have probably already come to this point to understand that this term is used. And you've probably also then have heard that the race is not a sprint. It is not a dash. And it is more a long run, such as a marathon. And I've heard it described in that way. But a more accurate historical understanding of this particular concept of that of being a race would be a cross-country race. There in the Roman world... Before the Romans settled the Gentile nations uh, around Israel, the, those Gentile nations were under the occupation of the Greeks, who of course have started the Olympic Games. And so, for example, the city of Corinth each year would host a huge Olympic-type sports uh, event with different individuals competing in different uh, activities. And one of the activities was a cross-country race 
where they would start and finish within the amphitheater, but during the course of the race, they would leave the amphitheater, run the countryside, regardless of the terrain, and make a huge loop and then come on back, and the winner would be the one who, of course, arrives first. However, though, in that culture, it wasn't finishing first that was most important. It was finishing the race in its entirety. You could still be last and be celebrated for finishing the race. But when we think of the race in that illustration, this is where the historical concept comes in. This is where it's uh, really uh, applicable to what we had just said previously about a cultural context. For example, if I were to say this race is like that of a marathon, you'd probably think the Chicago Marathon, right? And the runners are all running on paved streets and so forth. And they're running along the lake shore, and there's water stations along the way, and so forth. And, you know, there's just a sea of people running this race, and so forth. But when I see it in the light of the way Paul intended it to be uh, received, I understand, therefore, that the runner not only has to contend with the distance of the race, but also the terrain of the race. In the cross country aspects of it, it might be uphill. It might be rocky. It might be sand. It might be mud. There are different terrain aspects that would have to be negotiated by the runner and would have to be endured by the runner to allow the runner to complete the race. Now, when I see the Christian life in that way, I see it in a completely different picture, don't you? Meaning that it is going to be a long run from the start to the finish. But during my Christian life, there will be times that are going to be rocky. There are going to be times where I think I'm sinking in the sand. There's going to be times where I'm getting dirty in the mud. There's going to be different experiences along the way that I need to endure through. It's not just the distance in which I have to contend with. It's also the terrain that that race is run upon that I must contend with. Now that gives me a much different picture, doesn't it? It sets a much different expectation. And this is one of my greatest concerns about cultural contextualization is the fact that it sets expectations upon the recipient, upon the hearer that are false. And when they don't come to pass... People believe that God has let them down in some way. Well, God never told us to expect that. That was a conclusion you drew upon that you made that God never promised. Do you see how dangerous that can be? So as a result, Paul the Apostle, through the New Testament, continuously reminded his people of this race. And I want to get you familiar with your Bibles a little bit, so we're going to do some flipping around. Let us start in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if we can, where Paul clearly mentions this race, the same race that I believe is alluded to here, and I believe that this is one of the evidence for Paul being the author of the book of Hebrews, using this same illustration. As he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In the Greek language, the word endurance is the focal point of this particular verse. 
And then he gives us two ways in which we can run with endurance within that verse. So endurance is the key. So that endurance can be um, discovered as we read the different verses in which Paul mentions this particular race. Now you may have a question that says, well, how do I discover the historical context of the Bible? Now, some will say, well, that's a great mystery. Well, it's not as mysterious as you think. If you want to know the context of any book, what do you need to do with that book? Come on. Dun, dun, read it. Exactly. Read it. Shout it out. There's 12 of us here. Shout it out. <laughs> read it. If I want to gain the historical context of the Bible, I must begin to read it from Genesis to Revelation. Trusting that God is going to give me a sufficient amount of uh, understanding to place that context within. That being said, as we look at this race in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, this endurance by, begins with preparation. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So that you run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who is beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is saying that if I'm going to run the race, this Christian life with endurance, I must first walk in self-discipline. Boy, that's not a popular concept in our culture today. It's amazing to me how disciplined individuals can be within areas of their lives and then so undisciplined in other areas of their life. You know, for example, I've met people who are very good at handling their money. They can budget well, spend accordingly, live within their means. But when it comes to their time, they're clueless. You could give them five watches and it wouldn't help. They don't manage their time very well. And vice versa. I've known people who manage their time very well. Or people who are very diligent about exercising and eating right and so on and so forth. But then they have other vices that completely negate that. So it's interesting to me, but when it came to Paul's understanding of running the race, he said that I'm going to look at every aspect of my spiritual life and bring it under the, the control of the Lord through the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to make sure that I'm dis, uh, uh, self-disciplined in every area, just like an athlete would be preparing for this race. Those Olympians, you got to give them credit, don't you? They train for years before they get to the event. That's why, you know, you're heartbroken when the skater is getting out on the ice and she's doing all these things and she falls and you're just like, oh, because you know she's been practicing for years to get to that point. Or the guy who falls off the bobsled and rolls down the hill. You know, you just been like, boy, you know, they've been preparing for years this one, for this one moment, this one event, and then when it goes south on them, you're just like, oh, that's a shame. Now they've got to wait four more years to the next opportunity. But Paul says, I'm going to discipline myself in every single manner. 
in Philippians 2, 14 through 16, if you'll turn there with me. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. He writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day that Christ, uh, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run—that is, the race—in vain or labor in vain. Secondly, if we are going to run the race with endurance, we must hold on to the word of God. The only way that we can hold on to the word of God is if we know the word of God by reading the Word of God daily. At the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, I'll read this one to you. Paul said to his young protege, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. This race that we are in, it is a cross-country race. The terrain is often difficult, and it is certainly a long-distance affair. We must discipline ourselves in every way. We must hold on to the Word of God, and we must set for ourselves the objective that the finish line is the goal, the attended target. I don't want to drop out of the race before I cross that line. That is what Paul is saying to us here this morning. And as a result, we come now to the first verse of chapter 12. As now the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that as we are running this race, He first reminds us that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. This cloud of witnesses has been, of course, paralleled to the spectators that would, of course, watch these Olympic events taking place before them. That's true to an extent, But what is more accurate, more historically accurate, is that these individuals, these cloud of witnesses, there's an aspect of their life that must be considered. They are ones who ran before us and who have finished the race. And they've done it successfully as our examples, therefore witnessing back to us, telling us to keep going, to keep pushing forward not to give up, not to throw in the towel, not to turn back, not to drop out of the race, but to push forward. For they have accomplished it, and basically they're saying, if we've done it, you can do it also because you have the same God that we do. The word endurance that is used here is one that means to uh, meet the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. To allow yourself to face the circumstances that may come across your path in this long race and be able to adapt and to overcome those obstacles that would keep you from the finish line and crossing and finishing well. 
These cloud of witnesses obviously are the individuals that we read about in chapter 11. From Abraham to Moses to Rahab, etc. But now the writer will introduce one further, and that is the person of Jesus Christ as we come to verse 2. But before we get that, let us understand that if we are going to run this race to win and with endurance, there are two things that we must do. Number one, we must lay aside every weight. Of course, in that culture, it is interesting that the runners like today would weight themselves to prepare themselves for a race. There was hewn out stones that they would tie with a rope to their leg to allow that stone to add weight to their body and allow them, therefore, to develop muscular uh, capabilities beyond their own body weight to carry them during the course of the race. And of course, you wouldn't see anyone lining up for the actual race carrying those exact same weights on them. That's only used in the training process. In this particular case, many have simply deducted that these weights are probably either vices or things that are not sin but are still holding us back from running the race with all of the uh, endurance that we should. But the word weight here also carries with it in the Greek language, as you read this word in other Greek pieces of literature, it carries with it the idea of the weight of mental capacity. I would say it this way if I was pushed to it. I would say that these weights are mental concerns, cares and concerns that you and I carry that hinder us from running the race in the manner in which God would have us to run. And the Bible says, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Now, whatever that care might be, that is keeping you from running in the manner in which God would have you to run, God's saying, lay that aside, that you may run full on for him. Whatever that concern or care that it may be, and that care may manifest itself in worry and anxiety, which then would be sin in the eyes of the Lord. But there are also cares and responsibilities that we carry with us that aren't necessarily sin, but can keep us from running the race the way God would have us to run. I see this with men, if I may say this this morning. Men feel today that what they need to do for their family is simply concentrate on the responsibilities of providing for their family, that is financially, uh, that is materially, and so forth. And they focus themselves on those things. They work excessive amount of hours. They continue to apply themselves diligently to their positions at work so they can provide for their families, that their families may have the material needs that they need or want here and now. See, that care and concern may be keeping you from running the race the way God would have you to run it. Because as a husband, as a father, God has clearly stated in his word that not only am I to contend with that and rely on him for the provisions of those things, but I'm also the one who is meant to be the spiritual leader of the home. I am here to be as a priest, bringing my family before the Lord and the Lord before the family, loving my wife as Jesus Christ loved the church. 
making sure that my children are growing up in the Word of God, making good decisions, praying diligently for them each and every day, and with my wife, praying with her each and every day, talking about the Scriptures in which we've read in our personal devotional times earlier in the day, later in the day. These are just some of the concepts. Those are all parts of my responsibility. It is possible to focus on one thing and to negate others and think we are fulfilling the mandate in which God has stated for us, but omitting something is just as much a sin before God as committing something. Do you see what I'm saying? Whatever these weights may be, these concerns, of course, if an athlete is at the beginning, the starting line, and he has troubles in his minds, you know, He's going to be unfocused. He is not going to run in the diligent manner in which he needs to run. But then there are the sins also. Sin will keep you from running the race than the manner in which God would have you to run it. Again, you would think that this is a concept in which uh, the Christian church is well... um, well aware of today, but again, this issue of contextual, cultural contextualization, we don't know what sin is anymore, do we? In fact, the world has justified almost every single wrong action, either blaming someone else or simply saying that we're a victim of our own circumstances. Negating the personal responsibility that one needs to take and must take before God. Before God, I am guilty of those things that I have done. I am guilty before God for those things that I have said and did and thought, etc. And I cannot negate the guilt in any way, shape, or form uh, before God because of His perfect holiness and my unrighteousness. That's why Jesus Christ comes into the picture. We take His righteousness, we take His holiness, and we stand positionally in Christ before God the Father and look as if we had never sinned before him. What a remarkable thing that is, because we all know that we're still a work in progress, right? We haven't arrived. There's still a lot to go. But I'd like to read some passages with you. I will give these for you to read on your own. Romans 13, 11 through 13. Paul writes, besides this, you know the time. Now, it's interesting that Paul writes each one of these particular examples. He's writing them to Gentile individuals who would have been unaware of the Jewish understanding of sin and evil. The Gentiles would have had a much different understanding and concept of sin and of evil than the Jewish people would, right? Because they didn't have the Ten Commandments which articulated and showed the people what sin actually was. For example, homosexuality was running rampant And it was completely acceptable in the Gentile regions. But Paul mentions it over and over and over again as being offensive unto God. So let me begin by reading Romans uh, chapter 13, 11 through 13. He says this, Besides this you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, 
and not in orgies and drunkenness, in sexual immorality and sensualness, not in quarreling or in jealousy. To the Corinthians, he stated it this way, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunks, nor uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were you at one time, but were washed, and you have been sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. To the Galatians he wrote this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. The word sorcery there means more than simple the sorcery that we would think of in for example, uh, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Uh, it is a sorcery that is the word pharmakia, where we get the word drug use from. He goes on to say that sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, uh, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in Ephesians, you see the consistency. He says the same thing to each person, each church, each region. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I don't know how much clearer he could be over and over and over again. Now, people will say, well, again, in that culture, these things uh, were wrong, and this is culturally uh, only adapt to that time. No, absolutely incorrect. These things were perfectly acceptable in that culture, and Paul is calling them out. He is, he is correcting the culture. And so therefore, it would mean that he's correcting the culture today. That there's a cultural standard and then there's a godly standard of morality. And the Bible dictates to us what that godly standard is. And these sins must be done away with. They're done away with in the life of the individual by repentance. Turning from these things. Now when Paul says, these who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, he is saying that those peoples whose lives are continuously in action of these things, not an individual who's a believer who falls and makes a mistake, he is not including that. But one who does fall and make a mistake, then he get, the promise is given to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sexual, imp uh, sexual impurity is one of the big ones. It will devastate your Christian life. This is why pornography has been so devastating to so many people's lives. We laugh about adultery in our culture and we make entertainment out of it, but it devastates families, divides them, separates them. Trust is lost. It's horrendous. 
Sexual activity before marriage is, uh, is in, in not permitted because of the fact that God says that is something to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. Taking it outside of that is actually taking a sin that God has then uh, uh, d- you know, disallowed and, and taking it and taking your body and acting in a way that is inappropriate as a believer in Jesus Christ. So whatever sins may weigh us down, God says, repent of these things. And as we lay aside every weight, every care and concern, as we therefore uh, get rid of every sin, and it says here, which clings to us so closely, the word better translated in the English would be ensnares. The word that ensnares us in every single way, or ambushes us, or encircles us. That's what, he is ten- that's what he is saying here. Let us get rid of these things. As one wrote, he said, let us lay them all aside. Some sins can be easily avoided, but we're, they're not. Some sins can be admired, yet we must lay them aside. Some sins are ensnaring and thus especially harmful. And some sins are more dangerous than others. And all of these must be avoided. This will hinder you. These, is, these are the sins that Paul made himself aware of. And again, Paul was a person just like you and I, who sought to please Christ with every aspect of his life and set Christ first amongst them all. And then he goes on to say, As we run this race with endurance, the race that is set before us, he says, now look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When the writer of Hebrews speaks about looking to Jesus, again, it's easy to conclude that he is saying, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. You know, it would be saying to a runner, keep your eyes fixed on the finish line and don't stop short of that. But what's interesting is that this, the uh, Greek phrase that is used here is also used in a saying that the Jewish people had. I want to bring this to your attention. I find this very fascinating. That as individual Jewish men were coming to the end of their lives during a time of period called the Maccabean Revolt, it is when the Maccabeans revolted against the occupation of Rome within their, the city of Jerusalem. And of course, you know, they were victorious, and this is where we get Hanukkah from, and so on and so forth. However, though, when individuals were captured by the Roman Empire who were part of this Maccabean revolt, they were immediately sentenced as, you know, traitors and uh, those who were causing insertions and, uh, and uprisings and so forth, and they were immediately executed for what they had done. The martyrs, right before they were executed, would shout out, for I am looking on to Jehovah. And they fix their eye on heaven the moment before they would die. The writer of Hebrews is bringing that into our understanding. That this is a life and death matter. 
And looking on to God, looking on to Jesus, now he is saying Jesus is the equivalent to Jehovah, which is very interesting concerning the deity of Christ. But he's also saying here that that was the mindset of the individual martyr. This is the mindset that you and I must have as we run this race to win, which may end in our death. Now, what's interesting is when you make your way to the book of Acts, when Stephen is being stoned, the last thing he does is looks to heaven, sees the Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and says, oh my, you know, this is it, Lord. Welcome me into your kingdom. Very interesting. But Jesus, the founder and perfecter, and I grew up with the King James, so it's the author and the finisher of our faith, you know, But Jesus not only went before us as our ultimate example, as the one founding our faith, that is that God is not only the one who goes before us demonstrating what true faith is, and of course Christ demonstrated it perfectly, that is his faith within his Father, but that also that our faith is written by the hand of God that he is the author, that he is the founder of the faith that is in us, and what he has begun, he is faithful to complete. The work that God is doing in you, he will complete in you. And as a result, we can be confident that when we are weak, he will be strong. When we are faithless, he will be faithful. When we don't think that we can take another step within the race in which we are running, that our bodies and our minds and our spirits are failing us. It is at that moment that we can trust God to carry us one step further. Of course, we all remember the famous poem of the footprints. As there's two pairs of footprints on the sand and then they become one, the individual first assumed that God had left them and said, no, 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 I never left you. You see the one set of prints because it is at that point that I carried you. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. For he started his race and ran it perfectly. But not only that, he is with us each and every step of the way and he is in control each and every step of the way. So when I feel as if I can't go on one step further, it is at that moment that God says, I am with you and I will carry you. Because the work that I have started in you, I am faithful to complete. Notice that the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Difficult phrase. He's not saying that the cross was joyful to Jesus. Dying on the cross was not a joyful experience for Jesus. Jesus was looking past the experience of the cross to what would take place after it. You know, I'm still amazed that our race continues after watching my wife go through 31 hours of labor and then ending up in a cesarean section and so forth and and so forth. Women, I, I, I don't understand, but God bless you that you're even willing to have children any longer. But when people are so joyful about realizing that they're pregnant and they're going to expect a little one, you have to believe that they're looking past the labor and the delivery, aren't they? Oh, I can't wait for those labor pains. Oh, I've been waiting all my life to feel like a truck is running over my back or to give birth. 
what would seem one of the most unnatural actions in the world is the most natural action of the world. You would think to yourself, well, you have to be looking past that for the joy in which the child is going to bring into your life. The joy of being a parent, the joy of being a mother and a father, etc. Jesus looked past the cross to the joy that was established knowing that you and I would benefit from the salvation that he provides through the cross. That he is going to uh, pave a way for you and I to once again have a, a deep abiding relationship with God the Father. So he looked past that moment. Instructing us in the exact same ways. Sometimes when we are faced with circumstances that are overwhelming and traumatic to us, we get stuck there. And that's all we can see, right? This is all that's in my line of sight. I can't get past this particular moment. But with God, he says, you can look past it. And you can be joyful knowing that even in this circumstances, I'm doing something miraculous. I'm doing something within your life that you don't anticipate. I'm bringing you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so Christ, our demonstration despising the shame, the writer says here. The shame of the cross is one of the ideas that has been lost in our current culture. In fact, I don't even know if our current culture really identifies with shame any longer and what it means. Shame was something that was to be avoided altogether. In fact, did you know that during the 1700s, men who would rebuke another man would often say, shame upon you for what you have done. And it was a strong rebuke. Now, if someone came to you this morning and said, shame upon you, you'd be like, okay, really? What does that mean? Shame upon you? I don't know. But did you know Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, but others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a shame that will be experienced by an unbeliever in the presence of God. There is a shame that will be... Uh, uh, that will grip the heart and mind of the individual before God at the moment that he understands or she understands that they stand apart from God, stand in their own righteousness that is completely faulty before a holy God. And what we don't understand when we talk about this shame is the shame that Jesus Christ took in our place. Jesus bore a shameful accusation as they called him a liar. They blasphemed against him. Jesus bore a shameful mocking as they mocked him in the manner in which they did. He therefore knowing full well that he was exactly who he said he was and that he was doing this out of love for them, his own accusers, those who were persecuting him and mocking him, he was doing it on their behalf to allow them to escape the death that they were facing individually and personally. Jesus bore a shameful beating on our behalf. Think of the manner in which they treated the Son of God. Ripping out his beard, covering his head, throwing punches upon him while he could not see. And he loved people perfectly. 
He showed God the Father to them exquisitely, and yet he was beaten for it. He wore a shameful crown of thorns in place of the diatim, the the crown of royalty that he should have been crowned with by his people. He wore a shameful robe as they took a horse blanket from the back of a horse that was purple and robed him, mocking him once again, but also inadvertently in the purple in which it displayed showed his royalty. Jesus bore shameful mocking even as he prayed on the cross at that moment when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He experienced all that shame so you and I would not have to stand before him in the shame of our own sin. And so despising these things, the shame that came before the cross, he looked past them. He said, the shame that I'm going to experience is completely and utterly outweighed by the good in which my sacrifice is going to bear upon the human race. I'm willing to experience this moment, this temporary moment of shame that others may come to a glorious salvation through me to the Father. I'm willing to do that, Jesus said, on our behalf. And notice this, that once he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now the writer says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what that means? It means that it's done. It's over with. There's no going back. It doesn't have to be done again. This price is paid for once and for all for you and I. And now this last example should encourage us to endure. To, re- to lay aside the weights and sins that may keep us from running the race to win. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, looking to him. Even if the race means my own personal death, I look unto Christ for my salvation, for my deliverance. Trusting him that when I can go no further, he can take me one step further in and, in and above my own personal ability. From the very beginning, the writer of Hebrews stated that for you have need to endure so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive that which is promised. We need to keep pushing forward. The way that we are going to experience and realize the promises that God has made to us is not by dropping out of the race, but by continuing in the race, pushing forward past the circumstances that would keep us from fulfilling all that God has for us. We need to press on, as Paul wrote in Acts 20, 24, as he was coming close to the end of his life. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, for only if I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's all that mattered to him. And lastly, as he wrote to the Philippian church to encourage them. And I think that all of us need to know this. Some of us may have been very uh, concerned as we read through the hall of faith saying, I can never get there. I could never have that kind of faith under those particular circumstances. Know this, 
that it wasn't these individuals, it was God working through them. For I am sure of this, Paul said, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, his return. God is working in you. God using ordinary people for extraordinary things. Our faith is not based upon our personal understanding of ourselves. Our faith is based on a personal understanding of who God is. Therefore, allowing us to see beyond the moment to the greater glory that lies ahead. That is what the founder and perfecter of our faith has set before us. Let's keep our eyes on him.